have a question. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to teach just like Jesus? In fact, wouldn't it be able to, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to not only teach, but to live just like Jesus? And to be able to love like Jesus and to forgive like Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? Matter of fact, that serves as this morning's sermon title. To teach, to live, to love and forgive, just like Jesus. Last weekend, we were at the Affirming the Faith Seminar in Oklahoma City, and the theme was the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, as most everybody knows, covers three chapters in Matthew. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 7 of which concludes with these words in verses 28 and 9. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Can you imagine teaching that large of a crowd of people for what certain, what surely must have been hours, I would think, and then having them say that about your teaching. They were astonished, they were amazed at his teaching. Wouldn't it be incredible to be able to instantly and thoroughly refute and defeat the error of those who were hostile to you and the truth that you taught the same way Jesus did. The same way Jesus did so often. He did it with the elders. He did it with the scribes, the Pharisees. He did it with so many, the chief priests. Just as we see him doing in Mark chapter 11, where in verse 18 says, and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Again, we see that, that they were just absolutely amazed at Jesus' teaching. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to teach like that and refute those religious leaders the way he did in Matthew 21 and 2, where in verse 33 of chapter 22 says, when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Again and again they were we could go this past Friday night as we were at Affirming the Faith, where there were 1,100 people on Friday night. Brother Steve Higginbotham preached the Friday night session, and he said this. He said, 24 times in the four gospel accounts, it is recorded that people were either astonished and or amazed at Jesus' teaching. Two dozen times. Now, some of those, of course, are duplicates, you know, between the gospel writers, but 24 times. I've taught in here before that good teachers ask questions. Brother Steve Higginbotham stated that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, actually asked 14 questions. 14 different questions. Do you know that that's an average, therefore, of about five times per chapter? 
in the Gospel according to Matthew, three chapters, 14 questions, about five times. And Matthew has the largest account of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, our brother Steve said, used extreme illustrations to grab their attention. He said he asked his Bible students how many illustrations that they thought Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. He said some of them said well, he must have used, you know, like 10. Others said, well, well, 15. You know how many illustrations Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount according to Brother Higginbotham? 41. Think about that, 41 illustrations. According to the Gospel, according to Matthew, that would be 14 times a chapter average that Jesus used an illustration. Are illustrations important in teaching? Oh, are they ever. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to teach and illustrate and get your point across triumphantly to all of those who were hostile to the truth that you taught? Same way Jesus did in so many places. Take a quick look with me this morning in Luke chapter 7 and we'll see a, a classic example of this. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, Jesus taught so beautifully, illustrated so wonderfully, got his point across to the point that it was impossible to legitimately refute it. Oh, to teach like that. Luke 7, verse 36, when the Pharisees, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, notice, quietly, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. You can just, you always sense him cringing. It's like, this guy can't really be a prophet. If he, if he was, he wouldn't allow this. Who? <laughs> Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. I mean, he's he's all, all in. Look at this. This is beautiful. Jesus said there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Good teachers ask questions. Jesus comes up with this illustration. He says, Simon, who, who's, who's going to love him more? It's a brief lesson and a quick question. <laughs> Simon answered and said, I love the second word of this reply. I suppose he didn't want to admit it. He was begrudging. I suppose the one who was forgiven more. The one whom he forgave more. You ever had somebody say that in answer to a question? Well, I suppose. I mean, they, they, they got to agree with you because the point's so obvious. They don't want to. They don't like it, but well, I, I suppose. Jesus said, you're right. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? Jesus goes on from there and he, and he teaches again. Wouldn't it be wonderful to teach like Jesus? Hmm. Now, some people may say, well, hey, look, he was the son of God, okay? He was the word became flesh and dwelt among us, so he just knew instantly how to do that. It's just part of who he was. He was God, you know, so he could just do that. 
But I think if you examine the scriptures, you find out that there's a little bit more to this than that, and maybe that statement's not all that accurate. For example, wasn't Jesus also 100% human? Was he not the son of man? Yeah, he was. Didn't Jesus give up equality with God according to Philippians 2, 6 through 8? Isn't that what it says? He gave up equality? Yeah, he did. Was he not made like his brethren in all things? Hebrews 2, 17, yeah, he, he was made like his brethren in all things. So, taking that into account, and he'd given up equality with God, etc. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't God, because he absolutely was. This is one of the hardest things in the scriptures to get our minds around, but he was 100% human and 100% God. But I would suggest to you that scripture tells us that Jesus didn't just, he wasn't just born, zapped with this ability and knew everything, and I'll, and I'll show you what I mean. So if he didn't get just zapped and know everything and, and all of that, then, then how did he become this incredible teacher of God's word? I think the answer lies in part in a couple of scriptures, both going back to his early life and childhood and both in the book of Luke. Look with me in Luke 2. Luke 2. Beginning in verse 41. We know that his parents go up to Jerusalem and they leave and Jesus isn't with them and they don't realize that for a while. And it says in verse 46 of Luke 2, Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. Notice, notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is sitting there listening, asking questions. He's in the middle of the teachers. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. But we understand that statement, don't we? We understand it looking back. We understand, bottom line, you could not keep Jesus, quote unquote, out of church, if I can use that terminology. You could not keep him as a youth out of church. Jesus was there at every possible opportunity amongst his teachers. He was there at every possible opportunity that he could be, even if and when, in this case, his parents were elsewhere, his parents were on a trip, his parents were doing something else. Jesus was there because as the Son of God, his Father's business always came first to him, no matter what, always. Jesus, as a young man, one of the reasons he could teach so well is because he was always there learning amongst the teachers, always quote unquote in church, no matter what his parents were doing. And look at verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Listen, if Jesus was just born knowing everything, then he couldn't have increased in wisdom. What does that mean, he increased in wisdom? That means he did a lot of learning. Isn't that what that means? He didn't know everything. He learned it. 
So when you consider that, I suggest to you that one of the reasons that Jesus was such a great teacher was from childhood. He always put God first and learning about God first and, and those sorts of things. Also, there's another one in Luke. Luke 4 and verse 16 says, so he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It was a normal part of his life. Just like kids that are raised in a faithful family, Sunday we're going to be part of the church. That's just it. I mean, that's just, that's the way it's going to be. This was his custom. This was natural. And again, we see that Jesus grew up going every Sabbath as his custom was and he stood up to read. So some folks can say, well, you know, <clears throat> because he was God in the flesh, he already had infinite knowledge and instantaneously miraculous teaching ability. But I don't think the scriptures bear that out at all. But even if one is going to take that stance, even if one says, well, well he just knew everything, listen, even if he did, which I don't believe he did, but even if he did, he was still there all the time. And if he needed to be, if that was his custom, how much more so do we need to be? And if he didn't have all instantaneous, miraculous knowledge the day he was born, as these scriptures seem to indicate, then he learned to be a good teacher by always being there, by listening, by asking questions, by being around his teachers. So, as we consider learning to teach like Jesus, we see that these are some of the elements that are born there. And do you know that Jesus does expect us to be able to do that, to astonish people by the truth we bring? Do you know that he does? It wasn't just Jesus whose teaching they were astonished at, but his own first century disciples. Turn with me to Acts 13 and look at verses 6 through 12. Acts 13, beginning at verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for time. Immediately a dark mist fell on him. He went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Watch this next verse. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished, there's our word again, at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord that Saul of Tarsus, that is, Paul the Apostle, brought. And please notice this. We say sometimes today, well, it would be so much easier if we still had the miraculous gifts. And we know we don't. But notice verse 12. The proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, but he was astonished at the teaching. The miracle caused him to believe, but the astonishment came not at the miracle, but at the teaching. You see that? There's a difference. Of course, he believed the teaching because of the miracle, but the astonishment is not at the miracle, it's at the teaching. 
So the Lord expects his people to be able to teach in an astonishing manner as well. But here again, how did Paul learn to do that? Was he just zapped? Was Paul just zapped with everything all at once? An ability? No. Saul grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers of the first century. He grew up, he was zealous, it says in Acts chapter 22, in verse 3. He was zealous for the law, law of his fathers. He'd grown up in the midst of teachers, just like Jesus had, and he had learned a lot of things. Brother Higginbotham went on to say, as he continued to comment on Matthew 7, 28 and 9, that one of the things that made Jesus, you know, I've, I've read that verse, and I always thought, well, Jesus taught as one having authority. That must mean that he like, had this loud voice and he was confident in what he said and, and maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But Brother Higginbotham said the reason that Jesus taught and it was seen as teaching with authority wasn't necessarily that he raised his voice a lot or simply had confidence in what he said. Do atheists have confidence in what they say? Do false teachers have confidence in what they say? Can they be loud? So. I got an education at affirming the faith. Brother Higginbotham said the reason he was recognized as having authority, amongst other reasons, is this. Number one, he spoke the truth that could not be contradicted. And number two, he embodied that truth. In other words, this is so key, he lived what he taught. He lived what he taught. And that brings us to our second point this morning in our title, to live like Jesus. Because if you don't live like Jesus, you can't teach like Jesus. If the reason they were astonished at his teaching was because he spoke the truth and he lived what he taught and he had that integrity, then if you don't live like Jesus, you can't teach like Jesus. Have you ever considered how many things Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount which he later lived out exactly? Have you ever thought about that? Look with me in the Sermon on the Mount. We're only going to cover chapter 5 and probably won't thoroughly cover that, but look with me in Matthew 5. Jesus lived what he taught. Nobody likes a hypocrite. Nobody. And Jesus wasn't one. If he was going to teach it, he had the integrity to live it. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you. When they, and of course these people didn't know all of this then. They hadn't seen it all play out. But Jesus had that, had that integrity. Blessed are you, verse 11, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did Jesus live that later on in his life? Persecuted to death. And what did he say? Rejoice in that day. It's the way it's always been. Jesus would live what he taught. Look at verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Just a little bit later on in the Gospel according to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus let his light shine by healing a paralytic. And he was accused of blasphemy by the scribes. But the multitudes 
glorified God. Look at Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He said, do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by... For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus would live that out even though he'd have to go through the cross to do it. Do you remember what he said on the cross? John 19 and verse 10. He said, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. I'm sorry, not verse 10. John 19, verse 30. It is finished. He said, I finished fulfilling it. It's all been fulfilled. But in order to fulfill it, he had to be crucified. Jesus would live what he taught. In verses 38 and 9 of chapter 5 of Matthew, it says this. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Do you know how many times Jesus Christ was slapped across the face, struck in the face with a fist the night that he was arrested and crucified? If you read through the later chapters of Matthew, the later chapters of all four of the accounts of the gospel, you'll see Jesus being beaten in the face, being slapped in the face. Jesus would live exactly what he taught. It didn't matter what it cost. If he was going to teach it, he was going to live it. He was struck again and again in the face. And finally, we would note from Matthew 5, 43 and 44, it says this, You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Did Jesus love his enemies? He died for every one of them. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Do you remember Jesus? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, do you remember his prayer for his persecutors? Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus would live every word that he taught no matter how difficult. And again, those are just a few examples from just the first of the three chapters devoted to the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel according to Matthew, but you get the idea in order to teach like Jesus, you must have the integrity to live what you teach. That means to speak the truth of God while living it out on an everyday and even hourly basis. Live your life. Live your entire life for one purpose and one purpose only. To live like Jesus, he lived his for one purpose and one purpose only. You know what that was, don't you? To do God's will. He said so in Matthew 5 and verse 19. I'm sorry, he said so in John chapter 5, verse 19. John 5 and verse 30. 
In John 6 and verse 38, three times he lets us know he came to do God's will. That's what it means to live like Jesus. Now, at the beginning of this lesson, I asked the question, wouldn't it be wonderful to teach and live and love and forgive like Jesus? But you see, that's not just a question to consider. It is a requirement and a responsibility. It's not like you can say, well, yeah, that would be wonderful. That'd be great. No, it's not like that. It's not just a question, wouldn't it be wonderful? It's something that we have to do if we want to go to heaven. Turn to me in your Bibles. I will prove it that, that in order to go, you must live like Jesus. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Turn there, please. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. It's not just a question we must answer. It's a life we must live. 1 John chapter 2. Verses 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Look at verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. If we plan to go to heaven, we must keep God's word and we must walk as Jesus walked. It's not an option. We must live like Jesus lived. No question about it. Brings us to the third of the four elements of our original question. When I said, wouldn't it be wonderful to love like Jesus? Now, on the surface, that sounds like one of those duh questions. Well, yeah, of course it'd be wonderful to love. I'd love to love like Jesus. Yeah, that's great. But I think all too often we answer that question in kind of an impulsive, automatic, well, duh, type of way, while remaining oblivious to what it truly means to love like Jesus. And this is something, these last two points, to love and forgive like Jesus, there's something here I don't think we consider that often when we answer that question. Hear me loud and clear, church. In order to truly love like Jesus Christ, that involves being hated like Jesus Christ. In order to truly love like Jesus Christ, we must be hated like Jesus was. One more time and let that sink in. We simply cannot love like Jesus until we were hated like he was. It's sort of like the old saying. You ever heard the old saying, Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You ever heard that, anybody, right? Okay. Everybody, I think, wants to love like Jesus, but they don't want to be hated like he was. But you see, in order to love like he did, you must be hated as he was. He made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that? This point is also made clear. Look in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. Look what he, he addresses it right there. And he says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But I say to you, love your enemies, 
Bless those who curse you. Notice it's love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Listen, it's easy to love somebody who's being nice to you. It's easy to love somebody who loves you back. It's easy to be a Christian sitting in the church building surrounded by other Christians. Jesus in this text says, yeah, that's easy that even those people don't know God do that. Even pagans do that. That's not a big deal. Well, why, why, what makes you any different than anybody else if you simply love those who love you back? Everybody does that. But think about it. Think about Jesus. To truly love like him is to show love and compassion to those who can't stand you. To love like Jesus is to show mercy and compassion to those who are going to let you down, those who maybe have let you down, those who either have and or will maybe forsake you, and even those who either have or will betray you. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that, we've been talking in here in the mornings in the adult Bible class about John 13 where Jesus got down and he washed the feet of Peter and he washed the feet of Judas and he washed all of them, all of their feet. Did Jesus love those who would betray him? Yeah. Did Jesus love those who would desert him? That night all of his disciples fled, didn't they? And yet he said in John 13, this is the way you need to love one another. Even as I, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. You see, you can't love like Jesus unless you're showing it to those who have done all of these terrible things to you or will. You know what that means? Well, let's, let's take this right down to rubber meets the road for us. means that when you come to church and everybody here loves you, talks nicely to you, treats you well, that's not really, doesn't give you the opportunity to truly love like Jesus. It means that only on those rare occasions, maybe you come into church sometime, sometime, and some brother just lets you have it with both barrels. Hopefully it never happens, but we're human, sometimes it can. Let's say that somebody in the church or in your family in the community, amongst your coworkers, somebody in your social circle has something really nasty and hateful and spiteful and just plain rotten and untrue to say about you. You know what that is? That's an opportunity to love like Jesus. That's what that is. That's an opportunity to love 
like Jesus. That is a legitimate chance to learn to love like Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through chapter 3 and verse 9. All too many people say, well, I'd, I'd really like to love like, I think it'd be just great to love like Jesus. You know what they do? The first time that somebody lies about them, the first time somebody mistreats them, the first time somebody betrays them, the first time somebody is just plain rotten and nasty and mean and spiteful to them, you know what they do? I ain't going near that person again. They've just squandered an opportunity to love like Jesus. They've let it go right out the window. It's gone. Because that's how Jesus loved. How many people have you heard leave the church? And later on, in bitterness and anger, say, well, brother so-and-so said thus and such, right? I don't like the way whatever. Man, if somebody lied about you in the church, the church made up of human beings. I'm not saying lying's good. Lying's a sin. Lying's horrible. I'm not saying that's good. But what I am saying is as human beings, we all make mistakes. And if somebody said something rotten about you, because they either didn't have all their information, they had a bad day, the whatever, they hurt somebody, it doesn't matter the reason. But if somebody just said something mean and nasty and rotten about you, the thing you don't do is leave the church. You've got a perfect opportunity to love like Jesus loved. Mm. And that brings us to the fourth and final element of our original question. Wouldn't it be wonderful to learn to forgive like Jesus. You know one of the reasons that Jesus was so happy and you see him with this joy all the time, the night he's getting ready to be betrayed, he says that he's gonna leave his joy with the disciples that their joy might be full. Even going to the cross, even knowing all he's gonna suffer, even knowing they're gonna betray him, he has it, why? I'll tell you one reason why, because Jesus didn't carry around a sack of unforgiveness. And if we're going to learn to truly forgive like Jesus, you can't forgive somebody until they've hurt you. Is that fair? Is that true? If there's nothing to forgive, you can't forgive, right? So in order to forgive like Jesus, you have got to be hurt like Jesus was. This goes along with the love thing. You can't forgive something that doesn't happen. In order for you to forgive at all, there's got to be something bad happen to you. We cannot learn to forgive like Jesus until somebody has done something incredibly mean or hateful or hurtful or spiteful to us. Even something maybe you didn't deserve. You didn't deserve it. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus forgive those who dealt him something he didn't deserve? Father, please forgive them. They know not what they do. You can't forgive like that until somebody has done something to you that you didn't deserve. And only when they do that do you have the privilege and the opportunity to learn how to forgive like Jesus. And once again, it isn't just a question we need to answer, wouldn't it be wonderful to do this? Jesus said we must do this. He said, guess where he said that, right? Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to Matthew 6. Look what he says. 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, say, well, that doesn't say I gotta forgive like Jesus did. Well, that's okay, because there's two passages written to churches where it does say that you must. It's not just a good answer to a question, it's a requirement. Turn to me in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 31 and 2. Look what it says. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These people aren't mad at themselves, they're mad at somebody else. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as, there's that big word from Bible class this morning, even as God in Christ forgave you. Had you done some things prior to your baptism that absolutely broke God's heart? If you'd sinned, then you had. If you didn't sin, I don't know why you're baptized, but okay. You broke his heart. And yet God was willing to forgive those terrible things that you had done against him, wasn't he? Didn't he? And so, we have the opportunity to forgive as Jesus forgave. When people have done horrible things toward us, and it says we must forgive as he did us. It's not the only place, look in Colossians. Skip over a couple of pages in your Bible to Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Again, this isn't just, wouldn't it be wonderful to do this? We are commanded to do this. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Brethren, <laughs> sometimes in the church we kind of got to bear with one another, don't we? We're all different. We're like, you know, 120 porcupines trying to back into the same hole, and sometimes there's going to be a little scratching going on. Okay. Sometimes we got to bear with one another. Okay, do it. And what? Look what it says. Forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And I realize the must is in italics, and I understand it's an added word. I understand that. But the force of the, of the text, the force of the context, caused the translators to put the word must in there. So in answer to my original question, not only would it be wonderful to learn, to teach and to live and to love and to forgive like Jesus, it's absolutely essential if we want to go to heaven. Because on a daily basis, you and I are supposed to be being transformed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, we are supposed to be transformed into his image. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we are to be transformed. So, if you're really serious about going to heaven, four things. 
you must seek to be here at each and every opportunity that you possibly physically can so that you can learn to truly teach like Jesus, fully live like Jesus, unconditionally love like Jesus, and unflinchingly forgive just like Jesus. You know what that's going to do? That's going to make both your life right here on this planet as well as in heaven wonderful. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes, it would. If you're here this morning and you have not started on that path, if you have not gotten on to that narrow path, it's sometimes difficult. We would love for you this morning who believe in Christ to be willing to confess him, repent of your sins, and be baptized so that those sins can be forgiven. And maybe you're somebody that's here this morning who's already done that. But you realize through listening to this lesson that maybe you haven't been as involved in teaching. Maybe you haven't truly been living like him. Maybe you're one of those folks who had the opportunity to love like Jesus because somebody absolutely, hatefully, spitefully used you and you missed your opportunity. Maybe you're somebody here this morning who's been absolutely lied about, taken advantage of, betrayed. You had an opportunity to forgive like Jesus, but you just missed your opportunity. We can pray for more opportunities for you. But we can also pray for you to have eyes open becoming more like Jesus. If you need that strength this morning, if you need to become a child of God, anything we can do to help you, we would love to right now as we stand and as we sing.